Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today I'm speaking with Jean Lee, a veteran journalist and Korea expert. She was the Associated Press Bureau Chief for the Korean Peninsula from 2008 to 2013. In 2011, she became the first American reporter granted extensive access on the ground in North Korea, and in January 2012 opened AP's Pyongyang Bureau, the only U.S. news bureau based in North Korea. Lee has also served as the Korea Center Program Director at the Wilson Center for Public Policy, and most recently, she is co-host of The Lazarus Heist, a podcast on the BBC exploring the gripping tale of North Korea's campaign of cybercrime across the globe. Jean Lee, welcome to Hot Wash. Hi, it's great to join you. So I, I love the podcast. It's a true crime thriller. It's a mystery. It's a heist movie. It's got almost a, a techno-noir feel straight out of a William Gibson novel. It has strange characters, uh, but it also has really interesting journalism that that helps flesh out how brazen and ambitious North Korea has been as a, as a major source of cybercrime and money laundering. For those that haven't heard it yet, describe just briefly the, the series and why you and your ho- co-host Jeff White wanted to tell this particular story. Yeah, thank you so much for listening to it. We came out with season one of The Lazarus Heist in 2021, and we're working very hard on season two. So I hope that that will drop uh, soon. And this was actually, the idea for this was Jeff's idea. He's he's a tech journalist based in the UK, and he had been following these North Korean cyber attacks and had wanted to do a series around these cyber attacks. And I was brought in to give it all context. And as the person who knows about North Korea, and I think that this, and, and to be honest, it was a topic that I've been fascinated by, and it was an opportunity for me to really understand what I was seeing in North Korea on the ground when I was there, which was a huge investment in science and technology. And so when I was there, I saw this young new leader, a millennial, Kim Jong-un, investing in science and technology. And I thought, this is all great, right, for the North Koreans to be connected, we, we thought and we hoped, but is there another side to this? Is there a more dangerous, darker purpose for all of this investment? So this was a chance to really put those, to really understand what it was I was seeing and also put those cyber attacks into context because it is really not just a couple guys in hoodies in somebody's basement carrying out individual cyber attacks here and there. But this is a state-supported campaign with a lot of investment, a lot of resources thrown at it, and a lot of pressure on these young men to produce. And so I wanted to explain what that means for these young men who I wanted to make clear are real human beings who are uh, under a lot of pressure, making a sacrifice and carrying out a mission, but also for North Korea, for Kim Jong-un. And for us, what does it mean for our security and global security to have these young men on a state-funded mission to carry out cyber attacks? What really fascinates me is that as a as a state actor in in cybercrime, uh, you know it, it, the the scale and the ambition of the, the crimes is truly impressive. I mean, one of the things that you discuss is the Bangladesh bank heist, which you know they were attempting to get a billion dollars. They only got away with something like a hundred million or something like that. 
uh, that's just absolutely shocking. I still don't think people really appreciate how much the Sony hack, how, how many ripple effects that had um, through Im- industry. But it's how the motivation for the crimes seems to be be as a, a, a genuine source of revenue for the state. You know, we, we, we talk about cybercrime and state actors in a lot of other contexts, typically in terms of espionage or in terms of destabilization or disinformation or things like that. But for North Korea, this is a real source of money, uh, of hard currency. And talk about that shift from uh, Kim Jong-il to Jim, Kim Jong-un and and how that how the 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 younger kim's attitude towards the internet really revolutionized how how the state thinks about generating income yeah you know we in season 1 focus on three major cyber attacks as you mentioned the sony hack of 2014 which was fun to revisit i think so many people remember perhaps vaguely when that happened, because there were so many salacious stories that came out of it, right? Uh, And it was connected to this Seth Rogen, James Franco movie called The Interview, a bro-y kind of comedy. So It's it's a truly bizarre little film. I mean, it's... Oh, it's painful. I recommend, at least for historical (laughs) relevance, that people people take a look at it, yeah. But very fascinating in, in the context of what we're talking about, because it was so offensive to the North Koreans. And, and then we talk, and as you mentioned, we go into the Bangladesh bank heist. I mean, it really, they were so close to stealing a billion dollars. It was just a few little mistakes or slip ups that prevented that from happening. And then we go into the whole, you know, as you said, they do, they do manage to steal a certain amount of money. And then we, we explore how it is that money gets back to Pyongyang. What do they have to do? So that's where it takes us around the world and into that overseas network. The, the third cyber attack is the WannaCry ransomware attack that uh, that that targets computers and infects computers right, around right, the world. Right, which is genuinely scary, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't a huge moneymaker, but it was certainly, like all three of these, planted a flag for North Korea in terms of waking us up to their capability. And I think what's interesting, of course, is that we underestimate the North Koreans because it's such a poor country and it's disconnected from us. It's just, most people are disconnected from the internet. Now, in terms of making money, I think this is really important. So in season one, we go back to some of the methods that Kim Jong-un's father and grandfather used to make money, uh, some of those illicit money-making ventures, because they are just crazy. They are They were so much fun to explore, and especially to interview some of the FBI agents who are on, who are on their trail. And these are things, it's just so much fun in, in the context of a podcast to be able to bring those voices to life. But it's certainly the Kims have been engaged in all kinds of ways to make money because they've been under sanctions for their provocations, building ballistic missiles in violation of UN Security Council resolutions for so long. So Right, right. And you could, been- you could argue that their 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 primary economy has been these cycles of blackmail escalation, lower the sanctions, get aid in, you know, do something provocative. And they just continually stoke that, that cycle over and over again to get 
aid cash flows, at least at least under you know Kim Jong Il. And those exactly, and those sanctions are just getting more and more intense in parallel with Kim Jong Un's ambition to build ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. And I do think that he has been thinking for a long time. Well, I I know I want these weapons. I know I'm going to be hit with more sanctions. I've got to figure out a way around them. And so as it's not just that they, they're not new to the sanctions game. Sanctions evasion is a huge part of their equation. And I've seen some of the policy discussions over the last couple of years, uh, some of my colleagues saying, well, the North Koreans staged an own goal by closing the borders. So that, that does them a lot worse than sanctions ever could. But I'm like, listen, they've been plotting and planning for ways to make money that don't involve borders because cyberspace is borderless. And of course, there's a question of how they get that money back, how they're spending it. That's something we'll get into in season two. But I do think that Kim Jong-un, he's young. He was educated in Switzerland. He was very adept at computers, just like anyone his age growing up in the West or educated in the West would be. He saw how the world worked outside of North Korea, how dependent we were becoming on computers in terms of banking, technology, our lifestyles, everything. And he saw an opportunity both for asymmetric warfare, right, disruption that you mentioned, and also cyber theft. So I think that these were, to me, these were what he as a young man, as a leader under a lot of pressure with limited resources, limited limited opportunities for making money in the face of uh, sanctions, was investing in, in order to keep his elites happy and to keep building in a nuclear program that he believes will pay off for him. So is it a double-edged sword for him? I mean, is there, I mean, China has really adeptly walked a line between being engaged in the modern internet economy and just simply because of scale, because of the, the size of their population, building almost like an internet within an internet uh, that still fits with their concept of the surveillance state. But, you know, even just sending the elite outside of North Korea, they see things and they they see what life is like on the outside. You, you know, I think about the USB drops that, you know, South Korea and the West have been doing in North Korea for a long time. And, and um, that would have been inconceivable as a, as a useful strategy, you know, earlier because the perception was that North Korea would would never you know allow e- even a minimal level of technology to um, you know percolate through society or, or cell phones I mean we can we can now see kind of cell phone pings you know geographically across North Korea that, that you know it is spreading what's the danger for Kim jong-un in terms of harnessing that power for you know the state purposes and allowing the general uh, population to to see what's happening outside of the, the hermit kingdom. Yeah, it is a double-edged sword, as you say, because Kim Jong-un knows that in order to convince his people that he's taking them into a modern era, that he's taking them into the future, that has to include science and technology. They're very aware that the rest of the world is more connected. But with that comes the threat of information. And information from the outside world that challenges the story that he's been, he and his family have been telling the North Koreans about why they need nuclear weapons, about the threats that they face, and the reasons behind their poverty. And so I, 
I have seen over the last decade a real push and pull both on the part of Kim Jong-un and in the regulations. And there was a moment where we thought things were really going to open up. And, you know, I, I have to say I was a part of that. I was there at the time where I pushed the North Koreans to let me use a cell phone in North Korea and have access Th- to the outside world. This was world. around 2011, correct? So I started building the opera, the AP Bureau in 2011, started making a lot of trips there, was accredited to join the Foreign Press Corps in 2011. We were supposed to open the Bureau in 2000, in the end of 2011, but we had to delay it because Kim Jong-il died. The country went into a period of mourning. So we ended up opening it in January, 2012. And pretty soon over the course of that, uh, those two years, the next two years, I was just trying to push things, take advantage of this new era uh, and also... Uh, take advantage of his interest in science and technology. I mean, it was a fascinating time to be there, as you can imagine. He was a young man who people were very hopeful would be different. And I do think, you know, we always tend to think that he he's, there's the portrait of him that the state likes to project. And then there's the more complicated person who I think I saw in those early years somebody who did want his people to be more sophisticated and have more access to science and technology, but was also scared of what that would mean in terms of the control that he had over his hold on the people. And so we saw a lot of back and forth. Uh, There was a period though, of course, we started to see things open up and a lot of, uh, we were so it used to be that I would have to check my phone in uh, at the Beijing, air, or sorry, at the Pyongyang airport. It got to the point where I just didn't bring my phone in at all. I just for security reasons, I would leave it in Beijing. And then you were just, I mean, it's so strange. It's like going before that, this was a, like you said, uh, before 2013. So 10 years ago, where it felt like you were really walking back in time. It's really the only place I could imagine on the on on earth where you don't have cell phone, ac- you have no access to the outside world. And to give you an example, I was there when the tsunami happened in Japan and was that 2011, 2011. I had no idea. I mean, at the time in the region, you know, Japan is not wow. that far from North Korea. No idea. Wow. wow. Um, <laughs> because I didn't have a phone. My, the North Koreans didn't have phones. We hadn't, we, we were out all day. We didn't realize till we got to the Beijing airport and it was complete chaos at the airport. And I had like 70 voicemail messages and I didn't, nobody told me what was happening. I was just thinking, listening oh to God. these messages, want to make sure you're okay. And I just thought, so that shows you, it gave me a taste of how cut off the North Korean people are. Now, Kim Jong-un, I think has got, like I said, he's gone back and forth. And uh, at this point, he is at a phase where... Uh, he has tried to cut his people off from access to information almost as completely as he can by shutting the border. He sealed the borders. The COVID, the pandemic was the pretext for that. But I think the reasons are much greater, deeper and have to do about the threat of information. And so when we talk about the internet, very, very few people have access to the internet as we know it. Did, did, when you were there, did your coworkers have cell phones? Was that I mean, what was the prevalence of of even access to a personal computer or um, you know anything that was USB capable or, or da- data capable, not necessarily internet capable? So certain North Koreans, including my colleagues, had access to cell phones. 
But their cell phones and my cell phone were on different networks. And the odd thing was, and this is this is part of the bizarre way that they keep us separate from them. The thing was that I could call you in Washington, D.C., uh, or my sister in Brooklyn, New York, but I could not call my reporter in Pyongyang, or I could not call my parents in South Korea. So, uh, and, and likewise, they could call one another, but they couldn't call any foreigner to call out of the country. So we had a lot of creative ways to get around that. Uh, but that's part of how they keep- Can with a string, carrier pigeon. Uh. Essentially, essentially. <laughs> so there are a lot of workarounds, I will say. Uh, and, um, and that's partly how they keep, uh, and you know, there are, for example, there are ways that you can call or send an email as a North Korean, but you have, it's all carefully, closely vetted and, and all pre-approved. So if you, John, were to try to send an email to someone in North Korea, it will bounce back unless you had express permission uh, to email that person. So it's really, they, they're very, very strict about keeping those walls up. Uh, that's, that was part of the challenge for me being there was how to get past that how, and that was, that's the biggest challenge for a journalist, right? So the, when you're on the ground, of course, the way I was day in and day out, you find ways to work around it. And that was something that was my mission and my staff did everything they could to help within, without breaking any rules, which is a whole other story. But in terms of the internet, they had a really vibrant, active intranet system that those who right. had computers and electricity. So this again is a very small group of people who have electricity, who have computers and have access to the intranet, but they didn't have access to the World Wide Web as freely and openly as we did. It was there were some places where they could access it if they had permission that was very closely monitored. And so again, it's this idea that information is dangerous. And the idea that the regime was trying to promote that let the government decide what kind of information you can access. So you know, it was interesting for one of the fun things for me was to go into the main library and look up the uh, the catalog and see what kind of books you could get. And there was a wide range, but again, so it means they have access to information, but it's vetted by the government. And right. so, but they do not have open access to the internet the way we do. Uh, the government really wants to maintain uh, control over the exposure that the people have to the outside world. And, and, and it sounds like, I mean, in the Lazarus Heist, you talk about creating this cadre of cyber warriors. It sounds cliche to talk about it that way, but I mean, they're, they're being uh, basically trained to, to partake in these state-sponsored cyber crimes. And it sounded like what you were saying was that there was almost a a, a non-technological vetting process. The young man that you talk about basically came into it through this uh, maths contest, um, and that he, you know, performed very well in math. And you know, then at, at some point, I imagine him being, you know, shown the back room, and it's like uh, we've got not your internet, we've got the whole internet here, you know. Um, but uh, he, he ultimately, I mean, talk talk a little bit about how how that cadre of of professionals who are partaking in the cybercrime is kind of uh, you know exposed to the technology and and, and brought up uh, to those capabilities. I mean, at least as far as what we know and, and based on your reporting. 
I know cyber warriors as a term sounds kind of hokey, but I think it's important for us to remember that they are working almost on a military basis on behalf of their country. And that's how we should look at it, that it is a military operation in some sense. They're doing their military service as hackers. And that that's important for us to remember that every young man in North Korea is obligated to serve in the military for a certain number of years. And the, and the most brilliant of them are being routed into cyber. And I think it's important to point that out just because it gives us an idea of what we might have to do if we want to defend ourselves or go on the offensive to deal with cyber hackers who are being treated like their most valued military officers. Uh, <clears throat> I've often written before that nuclear scientists in North Korea are treated, treated like rock stars. Uh, the, these, this is a society that sees its future as being dependent on the people who are making money through science and technology and building weapons through science and technology. And this is so intertwined with the vision that Kim Jong-un is telling his people he has to lead them into the future. I thought it was important. It was really important for me. It really still is very important for me to put a name and a face on who these young men are and for us to try to understand instead of leaving them in the dark, which is how hackers operate. I really thought it was important for us to understand and humanize them, not to rationalize or justify what they're doing, but for us to understand what their motivations are. And so following that, like, as I said earlier, I spent a lot of time in computer labs and with these young men who would have been plucked uh, for, to, to, would have been tapped to serve this, uh, serve in these military units, these cyber units, because I did spend a lot of time at their most elite science and technology universities. And so I'm very familiar with who they are, the milieu that they come from, what their education is like, what their expectations are. And so that's that's what we explore. Now, the, we call him the math genius. He is just this. He's so interesting because I think what he also tells us is he tells us how from an early age he was, he just loved math. He really was one of those kids who just thrived in mathematics and was given all the resources that other kids didn't have to, to cultivate this interest in mathematics. But as he got older, he started to recognize where this was heading. And he also made this decision that that was not the future that he wanted for himself. And I think one of the interesting things for me in all of the stories that we tell, particularly with the North Koreans and those who've decided to leave, you know, defectors or escapees, as they're commonly called, is when they make that decision that they can no longer serve the regime and can no longer remain loyal and make that decision to leave. And it's a hard decision. It takes a lot of bravery. There are a lot of sacrifices on both sides of the DMZ. Well, and, and there's the consequences to multiple generations of their family. I mean, up up and down, you know, the line. I, you know, and that's a really tough issue. I think that they do it knowing that uh, it's going to be a better life uh, and that they, they, they must have the conviction that it's the right decision, but it comes with a lot of consequences. So it's not an easy one to make. Uh, so it's a, these are heartbreaking stories. And I think that this... But what we need to understand also is the kind of pressure that these young men live under, the world that they're growing up in, what motivates them, what compels them either to carry out this mission or to abort mission, say, I can't do this. 
Uh, and so I think that one of the things I hope to do is to also humanize the North Koreans and for us to understand. It, it, that also gives us a chance to think about what we can do to fight it, right? Uh, right. What maybe not you and me, but what, what do governments well, so, need to do? So, so, so that's, let's, let's kind of focus that question a little bit is how does understanding the motivation of uh, the cyber crimes, both at the state level that, you know, this is really, they're looking for bang for their buck in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of revenue and uh, the motivation, you know, it, it really is state sponsored in the truest sense. I mean, it is, it is, they are a, part of the military and, and they're directed like military operations versus I think, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of cybercrime and it often gets really lumped in. Um, but just in terms of thinking about state actors, how do those motivations that are specific to, to North Korea change how we think about either preventing or targeting or defending against or, or just simply simply understanding it? First of all, I think that we need to understand what the implications are for this cyber theft and think about where that money is going and what that means for us. We need to understand that larger context to understand what the consequences or the impl implications are if we just continue, if we let the North Koreans continue to, to carry out these cyber attacks that are giving them more and more money. So we had one in 2022, the Axie Infinity cyber attack, which would have netted them, according to the FBI, about 625 or 600, $620 million. Of course, there's that question of that was cryptocurrency and crypto has crashed since then. So these are all issues right. that, yeah, but that said, uh, that should have been another wake up call. Uh, so, and then you think about even if a portion of that goes back, say, to the nuclear program or helping them get the parts that they need for ballistic missiles. So, there's that element of it. Where is this money going? What does that mean for us? If it is state sponsored, then it does mean that we can look systematically at how the state is supporting and funding the training and resources, resourcing or support for these young men, many of whom are living overseas. And I think what we look at with the podcast and what's important to me is to look at that overseas network that because it is state supported, they, and, and they're getting a lot of their training and do a lot of doing a lot of their work overseas, not only in terms of cyber, but in terms of the broader uh, procurement agenda for their nuclear program is to really take a close look at those overseas networks to see uh, what it is that governments need to do to try to stop the flow uh, of, of parts and money back into Pyongyang or to sort of sever those connections between those North Koreans who are working abroad and the capital. So I think that it, when it is state-sponsored, it also means that they are not necessarily working as loan agents. There is a pattern. Right. There is a, right. a program. Right. Right. I mean, you know, one of the things that you, with Bangladesh, you try and kind of unravel is, you know, the connections to organized crime or, you know, in, in some cases in Japan with the Yakuza, there's, there's connections to, so at least on the, on the laundering side. Uh, what are the kind of other nexus for where the North Korean agents are essentially interfacing with global organized crime? I mean, is it, is it primarily China? Is it also Iran, Russia, uh, Russian mafia, or? 
so we're going to get into some of this in season two, so I may uh, may not divulge <laughs> which criminal. <laughs> okay, all right. All right. <laughs> so, you got us listening. All right. We're going to listen. Don't, I promise. Uh, but oh. it does run the gamut. And I think that they are incredibly resourceful, the North Koreans, and use whatever connections they can. Uh, I would say from street level all the way up. Uh, to the diplomatic level. So it's fascinating. They are constantly having to adapt. They're constantly having to evolve. They're incredibly resourceful because they're desperate. And at least with China and with Russia, that uh, and what the Biden administration's policy is, is a little bit unclear. Uh, and Trump policy was complicated. But at least starting with Obama, there was this approach of name and shame when you had cyber attacks and that and that the identification of the perpetrator in attack was an initial was an important initial goal but you know north korea is sanctioned up to the hill it doesn't really you know have any <laughs> there's no public shaming north korea do they care about attribution or is there a certain like do they need plausible deniability or is is there a certain kind of brute force you, you know, attack that, that it just doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, attribution has always been such a, an issue. And I think it's something that the North Koreans and I mean, it's, cha- it's challenging. Yeah. Ambiguity to their advantage. Right. Uh, and we've seen a few examples, president Obama, after the Sony hack did name North Korea as the chief suspect. And what's been, great for me is being able to go back and it's been years now since the Sony hack. So we know a lot more cybersecurity firms have, right. uh, have done a lot of research. And so we can, I can, it was fun for me and great for me to go back and really understand what kind of crumbs, what kind of little telling details led these, both the U S government and cybersecurity firms to uh, North Korea. And so the North Koreans remember they are, they're incredibly resourceful and so clever, but they make mistakes because in a sense, again, it's these young men who are sent abroad. Remember, they don't have the internet. They don't use technology in the internet in North Korea the same way we do. So they have to learn how we use it. And so they do make a lot of mistakes. And those little mistakes do provide a little bit of a, a trail uh, and so that to me was, as I'm not a tech expert, right? I'm not a cyber expert. So it was good to learn exactly what those little um, footprints are. Now, I think that there's a political political element, of course, President then President Obama was willing to name North Korea. I think we saw later with other countries, par- particularly when President, when Donald Trump was president, that he didn't want to name the Russians, for example, in, in the attacks that they were accused. So there is that political element, right? Right, right. Yeah. And so, but with North Korea, I think that, um, to your point, I do think there are times where they, they do want to plant a flag, where they do want to let the world know. And Sony Hack was one of those where I felt like they were like, listen, we're here. They had been targeting South Korea for many, many years, but this was the first major attack that we saw target, uh, Americans. And it was almost like, look, we're here. We are far more adept than you think. Uh, and um, because one of the things about the North Koreans is that they want to weave it into their asymmetric warfare. And part of what the North Koreans do is deliberately provoke to produce, to create the circumstances, to create tension 
They want tension because tension allows Kim Jong-un to rationalize continuing to build nuclear weapons. So that's a little bit of a different wrinkle that you might be um, referring to. I mean, that's a good segue. Let's let's put it in context of at least the the, the last major inter interface we had the the 2018 2019 ultimately the Hanoi summits under under president Trump how do you see those negotiate i mean i would love to just hear your your general thoughts on how effective those negotiations were you know ultimately they they fell apart but um, how how effective they were as an engagement strategy and how they fit into kim jong un's kind of larger toolbox of Cybercrime, nuclear saber rattling, etc., and the kind of the provoc- provocation for for aid cycle. That's a lot um, that we can't co- we can't cover in one answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm opening it up to you. It's general thoughts when you when you think of was that engagement strategy worth doing, and was it did positives come out of that engagement, even though it it now appears that Kim Jong Un has kind of swung the other way. Yeah, I mean, the question is, who did it benefit? I think that Kim Jong-un was, was on a mission to get President Trump's attention. He did that first with provocation, with a lot of testing. But I think he wanted to get to that point where he might sit down uh, with the U.S. president, but in a stronger position. So in 2017, he really he took advantage of the tension uh, to rationalize pouring resources into that nuclear program. And then he made a... Uh, turn toward diplomacy. I think that the you know it was, it's complicated because I think uh, the way President Trump approached it was uh, I think it, it there should have been a lot more working level discussions to get to make sure that those were successful. That it shouldn't have been started with a summit. Right. Right. However, what we did learn and what I learned was that Kim Jong-un really wanted a negotiation, that he wanted a deal. And I think that that's very useful for us to know. And it brought Kim Jong-un out into the real world for the first time ever. And so even though I had seen him in person many, many times, the rest of the world had not. And so it was a useful opportunity to see that he was a real person in some sense uh, and to st- and for the, for the U.S. negotiators to to get to know him. So where we are now, what I'm, what I, what I'm concerned about is that it's been, how many years? I can't do math. Uh, it's been yeah, COVID since- <laughs> time. It's been COVID time. So that's a, that's an in <laughs> four years, <laughs> that's a, a flexible black hole that, that fits between the time. Yes. It's a black hole where time was suspended for us, but they have, con- you know, Kim Jong-un throughout. So n- I would say not only the COVID time, but throughout the negotiations continued to carry out cyber attacks continued to build his nuclear weapons program. So if we were fooled into thinking that this diplomacy meant that he was stopping or suspending that activity, then we would be very naive. And so it means that, so we're talking about, say, 2017, when we had that, which is very similar to 2022 in terms of a real ramping up of nuclear uh, nuclear and ballistic missile testing. That's five years. If I five six, it's going to be six years. <laughs> it Can't feels do math. that way. Can't yes. do math. Yes, I it's am been not. About a, five years. I am yeah. not a math genius. Yeah. Uh, but that's we're still five, early in twenty twenty three. Yeah, five. You know, five years of uh, raising a lot of money for nuclear weapons and then testing a lot of different devices. Right, and and the, I mean. The delivery systems that they're getting to now, sub-launched, you know, short-range ballistic, you know, all, those are solid fuel. Now they're getting into the interesting part of the menu of options that's 
really concerning. Yeah. And it just means that if and when we ever get to negotiations again, they are going to be exponentially more difficult than they were in 2018 and 2019. Right. Well, I mean, the foreign minister, Ri Young-ho, who, who was involved in the, the Hanoi, he's, he was purged. He's disappeared. So do, what does that say to you in terms of Kim Jong-un's openness to nego- doing no- negotiations again? So I don't know what happened to him. I think that we always joke that, that uh, you know, check back in six months uh, because they will be purged and sent to re-education camps, but sometimes they will come back. Um, I, you know, I think that what it, uh, but there are these rumors that some of these people who were at the forefront of those negotiations with the U.S. were punished and some of them possibly executed. It shows a vindictive side, I think, of if they are true, the vindictive side of Kim Jong-un and also the pressure on these people to deliver. I think it, it was very difficult. There was a lot of potential with Donald Trump and yet a lot of unpredictability. None of these people, as much as they had been dealing with the United States and no, no one in even Trump's inner circle could predict how T- Donald Trump was going to behave. Right. Uh, but the North Koreans were the ones, the North Koreans who were advising Kim Jong-un were the ones who paid the price for this. Now, in terms of, does that mean that any policy toward uh, the United States is, is sort of out of question? Well, no, because the foreign minister, Che Sun-hee, we call her Madam Che, is the woman who's been at the forefront of all of this. So the fact that she is foreign minister says something really interesting, not only about women in North Korea, but she is the primary face of US-North Korea relations. That's really interesting. So let's expand this to you know the, the other ingredient in this uh, explosive cocktail, of course, is South Korea. And we have a new president. Um, we have Yoon Suk-yeol. Um, and he is very different from his predecessor. He made some statements publicly about possibly pursuing uh, a nuclear program, again, that had a lot of people very <laughs> uh, kind of up in arms. Uh, his office sounds like they kind of backpedaled a little bit and tried, to, tried to, to, to minimize it a little bit. Provide for us some context about the domestic political situation in South Korea and how the, were those statements directed at a domestic audience? You know, how how did you take those comments and how that fits into the the current picture uh, of negotiations? Yeah, South Korea politically is very polarized. Although I would say when you're there in South Korea, we don't know anything about that. That's yeah. very unfamiliar. <laughs> no, I know. no idea what that would be like. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, but it feel, it does feel very different when you're there in South Korea because what we see in the news when we're here in the U.S., of course, is the two major political parties when it comes to North Korea. Uh, but I would say in South Korea, it's more of an issue, and the difference comes with generation. And so there's a whole other layer. Yet the younger you get with South Koreans, the less interested they are in some of these issues. So the the current president reflects his generation. He's that's my father's generation. Uh, generation of people who remember the Korean War, uh, and so they grew up very conservative. Now I would say that the previous president Moon Jae-in almost represents a different generation in the sense that he was born, you know, his, he was born almost in the next generation that was K 
came of age during almost like an, I wouldn't say anti-American, but a very proud nationalistic South Korean era in comparison to the previous generation, which was survived the war, understood how important the United States was to that relationship. So we're talking there, each generation, each each decade, their identity is a little bit different because mm. the history has been has changed so much in, in modern South Korea. Now, in terms of nuclear weapons, yeah, I mean, this is the collateral damage of al- allowing North Korea to keep developing its nuclear weapons is that we may reach a point where we have no choice to accept North Korea as a nuclear power, which is what Kim Jong-un wants. But what that what does that mean? Some people say, why not? I mean, they're already there. And, and, and I always try to push back and say, well, it means that he, like the United States and other countries, will always be able to hold on to his nuclear weapons while advocating denuclearization, but then he will always be able to hold that over the region. Do we trust him? And I think that that will, because there's such a lack of trust that there are countries in the region that are going to say, well, if he's allowed to keep his nuclear weapons, then we need our own as well. And so I think that President Yoon is tapping into that feeling among conservatives uh, that, that they need to protect themselves they don't trust North Korea, uh, and that that they, yeah, that they that they will need to they will need to find to protect themselves against the North Korean threat. Now, I think it's not just South Korea, and it's a huge. I mean, if if I had if you had told me five, six, seven years ago that we'd be having these these discussions. <laughs> It was. It's. It's. It just shows how quickly these discussions have evolved. South Korea is a signatory to the um, MPT, uh, and so it would. It may not be that South Korea itself arms arms itself with nuclear weapons, but we are seeing increasing calls by South Korea by by the South Korean government. Uh, to the United States to expand the extended deterrence, the nuclear umbrella that the United States provides. Uh, so, you know, it's a really complicated debate. The way that I simplify, I mean, your audience is sophisticated, but way, the way that I simplify it for people is it is like a budding nuclear arms race in Northeast Asia that we're going to see uh, develop uh, if North Korea is allowed to continue building nuclear weapons. Right. Sorry, that was not the most. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, I've had a version of this conversation since, you know, the late 90s. I mean, I, you know, when the wall fell and the Russia withdrew its support and, you know, the famines, uh, you know, North Korea embarked then on on this this cycle of buildup and provocation. And it was the exact same conversation. But now, Japan has missile warnings and, you know, they, they wake up with their phone saying, you know, there's a missile over our heads. You know, that's, that's really disconcerting for a sophisticated, wealthy, nuclear capable, nuclear power capable nation to say, well, do we need to embark on that? And already, I mean, with Russia and Ukraine, but with increased tensions between China and Taiwan, Japan's attitude like Germany's towards, you know, uh, towards Russia is changing. It's a very different generation, and I, I don't think it's impossible that they could change their minds and decide to to take part in that in that race that you're talking about. And that and that I mean that is really both the on the the military diplomacy and the State Department diplomacy within South Korea and Japan. That that is a key figure. It's like we need to keep them convinced that we are committed to this deterrence relationship 
to this uh, security relationship so, in part so that South Korea and Japan don't don't try and join the nuclear club. So I would say that's the foreign policy. But again, when you're there speaking to young South Koreans, they're largely oblivious to all of this. When you grow up with crisis, it seems normal. It's they, You grow up with crisis, so you become in your... And I would say that we are becoming somewhat oblivious to North Korea when I think when I see how little coverage... Oh, when was the last time it was on the front page? I mean, <laughs> you know, the number of tests we've had and the number of times it's gotten closer to the front page than, you know, whatever, page 10, you know. It's, it's barely on the news in South Korea. Um, and I think part of it is also that the... South Korean government has a had a long has had a long campaign to kind of block South Koreans from learning anything about North Korea. So the national security law makes it very difficult for South Koreans to access information about North Korea. So I push against this because I think if there's anyone mm. we expect to know to be knowledgeable about North Korea, it's the South Koreans. And yet I find that they are less knowledgeable aside from the experts and the scholars who are very knowledgeable, right, the right. average person is less knowledgeable about North Korea than we are in the United States. And and that terrifies me because I tell my students, young South Koreans, you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. So you do need to pay attention. Uh, and so I, again, what we see in, in the news uh, from, from foreign policy at the government levels is very different than the conversations happening at the ground level. Uh, I think this a lot of young South Koreans, they're just caught up with, with trying to make a living in a really competitive society. Um, what they don't understand is that North Korea will do what it can to disrupt their lives when they feel that they are being ignored. And whether that's through cyber, especially with a society like South Korea that is so high tech. I mean, that country was way ahead of us in terms of embedding technology in their lives, but it also makes them very vulnerable. And so I think that one of the challenges that South Korea will face is engaging its young people in these issues and getting their support for some of these policy directions that the president has laid out, for example, in the in future years when when it's time for them to think about how they're going to spend their money. Well, I could talk to you about this all day. Let's just close out a little bit. Is Can you give us a, a taste of season two? When are we going to have it available? And, and what are you hoping to dive into there? You're in production now currently, right? Or have you finished all the episodes? Or No, we're in production. Again, it, it, so I do, this is a great time for people to listen to season one. And I think it's evergreen, but we'll try to bring season two up to the present. Uh, but we'll get into many of the things that we discussed today. And, uh, you know, I'm just, but I'm also looking to share some of my own experiences in North Korea. I serve as a bit of a proxy. We can't get to the North Koreans. We can't give voice to the North Koreans. So I try to, I want to take listeners to North Korea as much as I can, even though this, this escapade, the escapades we're going to go on are going to be in all parts of the world. Uh, so I know I'm not being super concrete, but we're going to talk everything you, we discussed today. We're going to touch on a bit in season two as well. So we'll have some of the bromance and, and uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll cover the last five years. We, we, we left off in season one with Wanna Cry, which was 2017. So we'll go from 2017. That was the ransomware um, attack. Exactly. And so we'll go from then to now and catch people up. We won't be able to cover everything, but we're going to pick again, pick some of the, the major cyber attacks. And then I fill in the blanks with, with, with the North Korea insight and anecdote. So yeah, it's uh, it's a, you know, it's a huge project. I feel a lot of responsibility to make sure that we're telling the right stories when it comes to North Korea. 
Um, so I'd love some feedback if any of your listeners do get to season one and tell me what it is they want to hear. Well, give my regards to Jeff. Uh, he's also uh, really uh, informed and tells a good story. And, and is, I think the two of you form a, a really nice balance and really enjoy the podcast. The podcast is called The Lazarus Heist. Jean Lee, thanks so much for joining us on Hot Wash. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.